0: Welcome to the Garden Church podcast. We are finishing a series called "Emotionally Healthy Spirituality," and it's a complete ripoff of Pete's Cazero, and we're, and the reason we're ripping it off is because it is so important. In the beginning of 2021, I was seeking the Lord, asking him, Lord, uh, what do we want to do over this next season to teach and raise our church as disciples towards? What are we leading them towards? And I had this question come to my head, which was, if you were to know what was coming in 2020, what would you have done differently to prepare the Garden Church? And it was a great question. Like, how would, how would anyone prepare for what we just went through and what we are, it seems like coming to the end of, for uh, at least our context. Other places, it's, it's still ravaging. COVID is destroying uh, India right now. Um, and I began to write some things down, but one of the things I was thinking about is all the toxicity I was witnessing online and hearing in digital communities, and house churches, and in families where we began to demonize one another for difference of opinion, for convictions, for worldviews that were different. And what I saw nationally in the church is the church divide over politics. I, I read this quote. It said something like, and I'm going to paraphrase, um, I've seen people leave the church leave their church because of politics, but I haven't seen people change their politics because of the church. And we all feel it. I know lots of people who have left our church because of we're too conservative or we're too liberal. And I was thinking about what that is in our context, that we are now in this fragile space where we don't have friends that have different opinions or different views of politics or about anything. We have created a fragility in our life that requires uniformity. And so emotionally healthy spirituality is our attempt to use great resources out there to equip us as disciples towards Christ-likeness. And the, the, the phrase that we've shared over and over again is you can't be spiritually mature." without being emotionally healthy. And we're seeing it across the world, leaders being taken out because of toxicity of emotions, because of uh, all sorts of reasons. But as we declare, as our church focused on making disciples, one of the things we have to see is the priority of emotional health for the sake of the world. That this, perhaps, would be one of the most evangelistic things we can do is to get ourselves following Jesus and, give, uh, and practice tools that will empower us to have healthy relationships with one another, understand the emotional depths that we have as a human soul, and empower ourselves um, with Christ's help through his spirit to grow up and not be emotional infants, which we'll talk about in just a second. You're going to love that one. Let me, let me begin by saying, um, today I want to talk about, as we conclude our series, there's two other topics that the book talks through, which we're going to put online. But we've done extensive work at the Garden with. One of them is called uh, The Daily Office and Sabbath that those are practices and disciplines for emotional maturity. And then the second or the last one that we're going to miss is called The Rule of Life. And hopefully you are here as we did a 12-week series through The Rule of Life, which we give you as a resource to adopt into your life. Today, to summarize, we're going to talk about um, becoming an emotionally mature adult. And then we're going to talk about two important relational dynamics that emotionally mature adults possess, And then I'm going to give you some practical tools that will help you with every single relationship you have. Does that sound okay? So why don't I pray? Because I said emotions. And you guys are like, why is the pastor talking about emotions? Um, Let's talk about spiritual things. And I caught you. (laughs) Because we've disconnected the things that actually Jesus care about, the things that he cares about. And I think. Because of this disconnect, which we'll talk about in a second, um, the greatest apologetic against Christianity are Christians. We have become the number one reason people don't want to believe in God. It's not a reaction because they've never heard of God before. It's because they've seen the church, and they don't want anything to do with it. And I can't blame them. And so in my attempt to help create a church that looks as good, as beautiful, good and as beautiful as Jesus Um, We're going to talk about emotional health. So let's pray. Jesus, have mercy this morning. I want to pray hope into this room and encourage to put courage into people's lives and remind them that transformation is what you are about. That you want to give us um, lives of rebirth. You want to empower us to experience real change wherever we are so all of the toxicity all of the emotional challenges we've faced over the last year all the ways we think it will never get any better I pray Holy Spirit you empower us today to have faith that change is possible in marriages with coworkers, workers with uh, roommates with kids with ourselves we pray your spirit empower this change in Jesus name amen all right Matthew chapter 22, if you have a Bible, would you turn there? Otherwise, we will have it on the screen where you can get it on the app. And for those of you that are following along at home, I see you. I get it. You're in your cozies, your Sunday's best, drinking that coffee, eating those kicks, whatever it is you're doing with the cereal, the French toast. I don't know, but whatever it is, I feel you. (laughs) Matthew chapter 22, verse 34. It says this. um, Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Quick context, if you're a Jewish um, student of Judaism in the first century, there were 613 laws in the Old Testament from Genesis to the, the prophets. And rabbis throughout history would rank the laws like college football teams, and they would want to know which one was the most important. They would try to condense the, the law to the least amount of laws as possible to summarize, in essence, the, the whole summary of the whole 613 commands of the Bible. So, this is a common question. And there were two debates um, between Hillel and uh, Gamal uh, that were debating. Uh, which which one was accurate, and Jesus sides with one of them. I'm not going to get into that now. It's a great, great little moment because you see this throughout Scripture. But Jesus answers the question, which he doesn't do very often, just so you know. He's asked over 187 questions, and he answers three. This is one of them. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So to summarize Jesus' teaching of the summary of the Old Testament, he uses these two passages in the Old Testament. And essentially, the, the goal of the Christian life is to love well. And the gospel of John, he says, by this, the world will know that you are my disciples. By what? By our Instagram posts? By our WWJD bracelets? By our, um, you know, how we dress? By how we vote? No, by how we love one another. How we love one another. Not like love in an esoteric, abstract idea sense, which we can do well, but to love through our actions intentions, thoughts towards another person. All right, let's just close in prayer. Lord Jesus, let's (laughs) repent. (laughs) Loving well requires emotional and relational health and maturity. Becoming a Christian does not automatically turn us into emotionally mature adults. Wouldn't that be nice? My wife's shaking her head at me. Yes, Darren, that would be great. It's easier to say we love God and others, but it's harder to actually do it. Loving well requires us to grow up. How then do we become emotionally mature adults? Well, let's define what we mean by emotionally mature adults. And I'm going to put some definitions from EHS on the screen. Please, if you came with somebody, don't hit them if any of this early stuff resonates. But here's an emotional infant. Okay. again, don't nudge your neighbor or spouse. Emotional infants look for others to take care of them, have great difficulty entering into the world of others, are driven by a need for instant gratification, use others as objects to meet their needs. Emotional children, just tell me what category you find yourself in as we read these out. Emotional children are content and happy as long as they receive what they want, unravel quickly from stress, disappointments, trials, Interpret disagreements as personal offenses. <laughs> Are easily hurt. We just complain, withdraw, manipulate, take revenge, become sarcastic when they don't get their way. Have great difficulty calmly discussing their needs and wants in mature and loving ways. Emotional adolescence. So now we're growing up a little bit hit the teenage years maybe, tend to be defensive, are threatened and alarmed by criticism, keep score of what they give so they can ask for something later in return, deal with conflict poorly, often blaming, appeasing, going to a third party, pouting or ignoring the issue altogether, become preoccupied with themselves, have great difficulty truly listening to another person's pain, disappointments or needs are critical and judgmental. So when we talk about becoming emotionally mature adults, this is what we're talking about. Are able to ask for what they need, want, or prefer clearly, directly, and honestly, not passively. Recognize, manage, and take responsibility for their own thoughts and feelings. Can, when under stress, state their own beliefs and values without becoming adversarial. Respect others without having to change them. Give people room to make mistakes and not be perfect. Appreciate people for who they are, the good, the bad, the ugly, not for what they give back. Accurately assess their own limits, strengths, and weaknesses, and are able to freely discuss them with others. Are deeply in tune with their own emotional world and able to enter into feelings, needs, and concerns of others without losing themselves. Have capacity to resolve conflict maturely and negotiate solutions that consider the the perspectives of others. I just wanted to read this list and say, imagine if you went through this last year with those skills. Imagine if just the church had those skills to give to the world. And we could actually absorb the emotional fragility and toxicity of the world around us, knowing that we can be centered and anchored and not react to what everyone else is doing. Could you imagine that type of capacity? That's what we're after. When we talk about resilient disciples, this is what we're talking about, becoming those kinds of people. And when you think about that kind of person in the world, that's a leader. That's some real strength to give away for the PTA meeting, right? Or the soccer team, or your coworkers, or your kids, or your spouse. These are the kinds of things we want to develop and grow in and towards. So Jesus says, hey, you need to love God and love your neighbor as yourself that in fact in that teaching which I could spend an entire series going through it's it's very dense but the whole point is that there is a direct connection between our love for God and our love for one another in fact that you can't love God unless you actually love other people well and what we do in Christianity is we disconnect Our love for God towards other people. We we um, limit the resources of our love to the people who are like us, who vote like us, who see the world like us. We can love God in worship, in prayer, in reading Scripture. Jesus says, "If you love me, you'll obey." So we can obey Him. And but when it comes to loving our neighbor, we tend to do it differently, don't we? Like, isn't it much? I I don't know. Maybe it was just me writing this. I was like, I find it easier to love this perfect loving deity than it is to love my spouse sometimes when she says that one thing that triggers my reaction. You know what I'm talking about? Is anyone else with me? I know there's dead silence in the room, but I'm assuming it's because you're wowed by my plagiarism of Pete's Cazero. (laughs) <laughs> just for copyright sake so I don't get sued by emotionally healthy discipleship this is all from emotionally healthy spirituality there's a very little originality in my life at this moment as I struggle to be the emotionally healthy adolescent or even child I'm going to preach to you about what I know from knowledge not through experience thank you so much for that disclaimer just to make sure my wife understands no The Bible is clear what we are to be and do as Christians because love is not some philosophy. It is connected and grounded in reality and how we interact. So there's things like be quick to hear and slow to speak. Be angry and not sin. Be angry and not sin. Watch your heart. Speak truth and love. Be a peacemaker. Mourn with those who mourn. Don't bear false witness. Get rid of all bitterness. Get rid of all bitterness rage and envy. And then there's this conflict happening in 1 Corinthians where where Paul has to describe what love looks like in conflict. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It it is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres, love never fails. And when I look at this list and I read the 59 one another's that we find in the New Testament, where there are biblical commands of what we are to do for one another as the church, I think it's really hard to love well, especially in our culture, which has taken commandments like, love the Lord my God with all my, my heart, mind, soul, and strength, and it, it makes it about myself, right? Like our, our culture has turned loving others towards self-focus. Because M. Scott Peck argues that we are all born narcissists. Learning to grow out of narcissism is the heart of the spiritual journey. And it's true. And every generation is getting worse. And all the, all the people that are from... Older generations, let's just say millennials and older can say amen. Millennials don't want to self-diagnose themselves. But Time Magazine ran an entire front page article about millennials as the me generation. We struggle with this. We struggle to live and grow. Spiritual growth then is about learning to love others well. It's learning how to live in healthy relationships. So, I want to give you some some thoughts about how we ought to love one another practically. In 1923, the great Jewish theologian Martin Buber wrote a brilliant yet very difficult book to read um, called I and Thou. Now stay with me for a second because this concept is really helpful for how we are to engage with one another. And it might challenge the way you have been engaging with people in life. So Buber described that the most healthy or mature relationship possible between two human beings um, are an I-thou relationship. In such a relationship, it recognizes that I am made in the image of God, and every other person is made in the image of God. This makes them a thou. Because of that reality, Every person alive deserves respect, and I treat them with dignity and worth. Can we put up that image? I think there's an image that illustrates what he gets to. So Martin Buber says, um, in healthy relationships, you must understand there's another person. There's your world or your reality, and then there's another person who is completely separate from you, And they have their own world and reality. Now, this may seem either really dull or really deep, depending on where you're looking at it. But what he says is that when I do not get to dehumanize or objectify any any person, I simply... Affirm them as having unique and separate existence apart from me. There is a separation between us. My world, your world. All mature relationships learn this. And when you learn this, you learn to respect and love and value people. But when you treat people, you can pause on that one for me. When you treat people as objects, you develop a relationship as the I-it relationship. And we lose relationship when we treat someone as an it. The it treats a person as a means to an end. I have an I-it relationship with a car or my toothbrush, but not my children or my spouse. When I treat them as an it, I don't empower them as independent, autonomous people with their own ideas, dreams, and freedom. I expect them to do what I want them to do and, and when I do that, I dehumanize their image of God in them. I diminish the image of God that is intrinsically in them because they are whole beings separate from my willpower and control. When I treat them as an it, like a car or toothbrush, I disconnect from our relationship. When you live with I-it relationships, what you tend to do is you tend to treat people, um, base, uh, I'm sorry, you get threatened by them, especially when they disagree. And the result of an I-it relationship is you're frustrated because people won't fit into your plans. They see things differently, therefore, they see them in the wrong way because your way is right. Growing as mature adults, we must learn and discover the otherness, of a spouse, friend, boss, child, or coworker. Are you with me? OK, now this is the central tenet of Buber's life work. He says in the I-thou relationship, uh, a person intimately reflects the I-thou relationship, human, uh, relationship that we have with God. When we learn to see someone as a thou, as independent and self-autonomous individuals who have intrinsic value and worth and respect, and when we treat them that way, we reflect in our relationship the very relationship that God has with us. And that space between thou and I is no longer a separate space that's void. It's actually the space that God exists in our relationship. It becomes sacred, not separate, when we interact this way. Now, this is deep, And and philosophical, but this is essential for understanding the importance of developing emotional mature relationships. That separate space between us becomes sacred space for God to interact. And when we do this, we learn how to be emotionally mature adults, and it leads to two very important, very critical relational dynamics that I need all of you to understand. And they're going to seem so basic, so get ready. You ready? When you do this, when you develop emotional maturity as adult and re- learn this concept of I, thou, two things happen. You will learn how to have healthy conflict. Can I get an amen? And you will learn to consider other people's perspective. Now, this may seem so small, but in fact, I think this is where the I mean, there's other roots to this because sin is a big part. This is where we go sideways in the church, isn't it? We are the worst at conflict in the church. When we understand how to have healthy conflict with one another, we can embrace a difference of opinion about all things. When we are one in Christ, We can learn from your unique perspective and not be intimidated by what you are saying online or what you're believing. But when we demonize you as an enemy in it, we no longer empower the God-given Imago Dei in that person. Whether it's a post or in person, we need to understand that we are brothers and sisters and we must learn to cooperate. We must learn to honor and respect each other. But we also need to learn how to be church together, especially because we all have different realities we're walking in. We're all in our own little worlds. And until we learn to honor each other and navigate the various conflicts that will emerge because you have an opinion and so do I, we will never be one. We will never be the answer to Jesus' prayer in John 17. That the world will know by how we love one another. Are you with me? So the church is a place where we must create space to have healthy conflict and honor each other's opinions and learn from each other's perspective. I can go off on that. But in the New Testament, what we see in the church, in the New Testament church, it's multicultural, multi-ethnic, multi-generational. It's diverse in its beliefs, in its worldview, in its languages, in its cultural practices, in its celebration of, of ongoing events, in their calendar. It has loads and loads of conflict. The biblical church, is filled with conflict. Do you realize that most of the epistles are dealing with conflict? Acts talks about conflict historically. First and Second Corinthians, Romans, Galatians, Philippians, Colossians, Timothy, uh, Titus, First and uh, through Third John's, James, Revelation, First and Second Peter. They're all dealing with church conflict. And what we've done today is we've just no longer learned, we've no longer been able to, to ha- have relationship with someone who disagrees with us on both sides of the political spectrum. But in all areas of life, I see it. That's why family reunions and Thanksgiving is so hard because we normally don't interact with our cousin, Marvin, or whoever his name is. I don't know why I said Marvin. Marvin, Marvin's working the screen. Love you, Marvin. (laughs) He's doing the slides. He's he's no longer gonna put slides up for me, so. (laughs) We don't wanna see whatever name because we see how they post and we've unfriended everyone who posts like that because we cancel everyone who disagrees. But the church has always been the center that that says, no, 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 no. In Christ, Gentile or Jew, slave or free, male or female, all of that is secondary to our oneness in Christ. Do those things matter? Of course, but in our attempt to make a hierarchy of power, in our attempt to say one's better than the other, We say, no, in Christ, we are all the same. And then we could say, okay, we'll just focus on unity. Let's forget the fact that there's injustice. No, no, no. When there's injustice that is impacting the Imago Dei, we say, time out. It's impacting our brothers and sisters. It's not enough to focus on unity. We need to elevate this to recognize we are all one and they're suffering. We need to suffer with them. That's a healthy way to do it. We can disagree on how to get there, but where we're going is unity. Where we're going is conflict, embrace. Embraced with health because we're all going towards Christ, but instead we just cut people out of our lives. We dehumanize them. We demonize their position. They're my enemy because they voted certain way. You can't say that. If they're a brother and sister in the faith, they are not your enemy. We do not have a luxury of having enemies ever, even if they're pointing a gun. Even if they're pointing a gun, we as followers of Jesus, according to the New Testament ethic, which we'll talk about in the Sermon on the Mount, are nonviolent in response. There is no New Testament ethic that says otherwise. Some of you are going to be really offended by that. OK, what are you going to do with the offense? Because the other thing in the Sermon on the Mount is the church can no longer be offendable. And let me just say that for all the young people here who are offended by everything. (laughs) Seriously, we take everything personally. We are emotionally healthy when we bring people into our emotional fragility because we want to be emotionally healthy. We're like, hey, I want to process how that made me feel. You haven't even processed how you feel. Don't bring me into that chaos of your emotional roller coaster. Process it with Jesus. Do the hard work. If it involves me, then bring me into it and we'll do it in a healthy way. There's like a millennial and younger thing where we're like, we want to be emotionally healthy. It's emotional fragility and toxicity where you are, you're not even doing the work. You're just talking about your emotions. That's not maturity. That's emotional infant children. Go back to the thing. all right, where were we? (laughs) Christians are the worst at conflict. And we hold this Matthew 5, 9, again, Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the peacemakers. So we avoid conflict in the church. We push down the things that have emerged because we think we're supposed to create this space of peace. And so we lie and we pretend we're at peace. But embracing conflict is the right and true path towards peace. Why Jesus in Matthew 10 says, do not suppose I have come to bring peace to the earth. I do not come to bring peace, but a sword. And what's he saying? This is what he's saying. True peace of Jesus is in conflict with the lies and pretense of the kingdom of the world. They must be exposed and brought into light and replaced with true. If we are going to mature, We have to call out the lies that culture wants us to abide by, that culture spiritually forms us into its image. We are in direct opposition with those things. So our offendability, our ability to be offended needs to go away. We don't get that luxury as saints. How do you like that? And this outrage that we carry everywhere we go with a a tone of hostility and anger. I realize there are things that are filled with injustice. There's pain happening around the world. We need to protest things. We need to speak up for those that don't have a voice. But how we do it, the tone we carry, the way we embody Christ in those spaces must be different. As we go into those spaces, do we realize they are filled with demonic forces? that have power over mind, power over emotions? Do we realize that as you engage in these conversations, how you have the conversation is just as important as having the conversation? Yeah. I realize I'm very passionate about this. Because as a pastor, and what, what, what tends to happen is, um, and, and we do this all the time for people in leadership, we just project so much of our unhealth on people of authority. Some of it's right. And I'm not saying don't do that. But the, unknowingly, this is what we do all the time. And I've learned by the grace of God and Bill Doctrine. Um, <laughs> right under there. Oh, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Bill for me. Um, just, that's just, and also, like, early on, I, I had to learn that if I'm going to lead a church, you have to be really good at doing conflict you just you're going to have to be good at being the the face of people's pain and we we cannot do unhealthy conflict here we need we need to have loads of healthy conflict but there are tools to do it well and that's what pete kazero talks about and we need those tools to love each other because loving well is not automatic we learn to move from defensive reactivity and fear towards openness, empathy, and vulnerability. So I am probably going over on time, but you know what, grace of God, um, we have one service. So we're gonna go, um, and all of you are gonna help clean up. So that's great. Are you guys good with that? That's the one, my commitment is to be faithful to the sermon. Your commitment is to tear down. Great, okay, here we go. So as emotionally mature Christians, we become skilled in peacekeeping. Not just putting everything under the rug, but peacekeeping. And there's an art to it. And so we need to learn skills to be a true peacekeeper. And this is from his book. So number one skill is speaking and listening. Maybe it should just say listening. But actually, we need to learn rules of speaking to one another. Here's straight from his book. Talk as the speaker. You talk about your own thoughts, your own feelings. You use I feel statements. Use short sentences and phrases when you're dealing with conflict or communication about how things are going with another person. Correct the other person if you believe they've missed something that's important. Continue speaking until you feel you have been understood. And that responsibility is on you as a speaker or communicator. And then when you're done um, and you don't have anything else to say, you say things like, that's all for now. But remember, use I feel statements, not when you do this kind of statements. And if you're in a marriage, you know this rule very well, don't you? Have you taken some of our premarital classes here? Because we talk about I feel statements. If you go to therapy, this is what they're going to teach you. Basic rules for communication. This is as basic as it gets. Probably more important than speaking is the listener. Here we go, from the book. As the listener, you should probably write this down. Put your own agenda on hold. Be quiet and still as you would before God. Remember, this is a divine encounter, this space between this thou relationship, I-thou relationship creates space for God's presence to interact in every human relationship, even if they're not Christian, because they have intrinsic value and worth because they are made in God's image. Uh, Allow the person to speak until he or she feels complete. Um, they've complete their thought. Reflect accurate back to the person who's speaking. Try to paraphrase or use words that they've, they've used. When it appears the speaker is done, ask, is there anything else? Is there more? And when they are done, say, of everything you have shared, what is the most important thing you want me, want me to remember? Now, I feel like I'm doing like a a marriage seminar or a healthy relationship seminar, but I think you need to understand that this skill is so powerful in the workplace. It's so powerful when there's any type of dynamic of conflict. I use this active listening all the time um, where where I just, my job is to retain and connect and understand what the communicator is saying, and then I want to reflect it back. I use it all the time outside of my marriage, just so you know. Oh, that was, wasn't a joke, but I thought it would be funny. Um, because I struggle. Why? Why do we struggle with the people closest to us? Does anyone know? Because the people close, closest to us often have the most capacity to hurt us. So we need these rules to be printed and reminded. Uh, for the sake of time... Uh, Number two, skill to develop is something called the Bill of Rights, not the Bill of Rights from uh, the American government. Um, But from Pete Scazzaro, he has a list on his fridge that I think are so important. And he says in his Bill of Rights, he says, respect is not a feeling. It's how we actually treat another person regardless of how we might feel about another human being. They are made in God's image and of infinite value and worth. So respect means I give myself and others the right to, and I'm just going to read these real quick. They're not going to be on here. Space and privacy, to be different, to disagree, to be heard, to be taken seriously, to be given the benefit of the doubt, to be told truth, to be consulted, to be imperfect and make mistakes to be honorable in their treatment, to be respected. He goes on and he, he summarizes it in his book. I highly recommend checking that one out. A third thing that we must do to become emotionally mature adults is to stop mind reading. He says, check your assumptions and stop mind reading. Every time I make an assumption about someone who has hurt me or disappointed me without confirming it, I believe a lie about this person in my head. And this assumption is a misrepresentation of reality. When we leave reality from, uh, uh, for a mental creation of our own doing, hidden assumptions, we create a counterfeit world. And so we do, when we do this, it, could, it, could, uh, it can properly be said that we exclude God from our lives because God does not exist outside of reality and truth. What, what he says is assumptions empower us to create mindset and beliefs and ideas about reality that are false. And God doesn't exist in false because he is truth. And so we must learn to check our assumptions. How do we stop mind reading? Number one, reflect on something you suspect the other person thinks or feels, um, but hasn't told you yet. Number two, ask them. Do I have your permission to check an assumption I'm making? Or may I have permission to read your mind? Ask them if, hey, this is what I'm experiencing. And then say, I think you think. And then give the person an opportunity to respond. We walk around with so many assumptions in our relationships. Think about if you lead a house church or a digital community, over Zoom, how much assumption you're bringing into it. Trying to lead staff meetings over the last year over Zoom was excruciating. I asked for amens on Sunday. Imagine that in our staff meeting. Hey, guys, what do you think? That's all you get in the box. I just preached my heart out, and all I'm getting is a thumbs up emoji. Thank God they came out with more emojis halfway through covid Number four is we clarify our expectations. Clarify our expectations. We're coming into land. Um, Unmet and unclear expectations create havoc in your life. We often expect people to know what we want before we say it. Isn't this true? And so we have unconscious, unrealistic, unspoken, and unagreed upon expectations. So unconscious, we have expectations that uh, we're not even aware of until somebody disappoints us. Right, You feel something, you don't even realize you had an expectation that wasn't met until you start feeling awkward about that person or frustrated because they disappointed something in your head that was unconscious. Unrealistic, we may have illusions about someone, a spouse, friend, a pastor. Unspoken expectations, meaning we may never tell them. We haven't told our spouse this is what we're hoping to do on our day off. We haven't told our friend this is what we want from our relationship. We want them to text back in a timely manner. Imagine how much drama you wouldn't have if you just said, Hey, do you mind tech- checking in on my mental health every so often because I'm dealing with depression? And not constantly getting upset when people don't get it. I understand if you tell them a couple of times and then they, and then they don't follow through, that, that, that's a different conversation. But if you've never told them, Hey, I tend to get really down every so often around this time of the month or this time of the week, would you just check, on, check in on me on Fridays? I mean, You just opened up space, not only to be rejected, but to be welcomed in and met where you're needed. Church, are you with me? Unagreed upon, expectations destroy us. We may have expected things, but we didn't agree upon them. So we must learn to have our expectations conscious, meaning I have become aware of my expectations of this other person. Realistic, meaning I have to ask myself if my expectation regarding this other person is realistic. Realistic spoken, I have to speak my expectations clearly, directly, and respectfully to the other person and agreed upon, meaning I have to give people the uh, opportunity to agree so that they're aware, they validate my expectations and agree upon them. This is how we have healthy relationships, church. We want the church to become emotionally mature, spiritually mature and emotionally mature in our health in order to, for the sake of what? So that we get really good at doing emotions? No, for the sake of the world, for the sake of re-discipling people in our culture of emotional toxicity, that we become a new culture. This is why we're doing this, that as disciples, we know how to engage in the world on the kingdom of God terms, not on the kingdom of the world terms. Of course, they're going to act that way. They're the world. They don't know any better yet. They haven't met Jesus. They are not in a relationship with the creator of the universe. They are living in sin. We have been set free, set apart, and discipled into wholeness, which is designed to be the way we are supposed to live in the first place. So let's give them grace when they're interacting with emotional toxicity, when they're posting things that once offended us, but now we're emotionally mature adults. And we can have an understanding, compassion, and empathy. We can be vulnerable with them because we can stand on dry ground. We're not getting knocked down by every wave, by every wave of insult, by every wave of crisis when media is going nuts. We can stand mature knowing that God is with us and we've got this. That's what this is about, that people could come in here And then join community groups or house churches or decide, whatever we call them next month, whatever it is. (laughs) And they learn how to be human again. Their marriages. Flourish because there's a way you guys talk to each other that is not happening in my marriage. I want to talk like that to my spouse. The way you guys manage your resources and finances, the way you guys just did open conflict where you guys didn't push things under the rug, but you actually honored each other, I want that. This is what we're talking about. Do you think this is evangelistic? Of course it is. It's not for you. It's for the sake of the world. It's not for you. It's for the sake of the next generation that needs to see a move of God that is healthy, that doesn't burn out mommy and daddy or grandpa or cousins, that doesn't push them aside and say the main thing is this. No, your household is the main thing. Your, relation, your love for one another is a direct right. So when you're standing there on Sunday doing this, showing them how to worship, you're also there on Monday and Tuesday, Tuesday showing them how to worship by how you treat them. Emotionally mature adults, this is what we are after. And we need God's help, amen? We need the Holy Spirit to grow us. We need healthy practices and disciplines. We're never gonna do it on our own. We're gonna need God's help. I love this, this, this little last bit. It says, it starts with us. It starts with us choosing to build these things into our life. And Jesus knew that these disciples of him, were not only spiritually immature, they were emotionally immature as well. They were neither spiritually nor emotionally mature, Pete Skazare says. Peter, the point leader, had a big problem with his mouth, was a bundle of contradictions. Andrew, his brother, was quiet and behind the scenes. James and John were given the name Sons of Thunder because they were aggressive, hot-headed, ambitious, and intolerant. Philip was skeptical and negative. He had a limited vision of what he thought Jesus could do. Nathaniel was prejudiced and opinionated. Matthew was the most hated person in Capernaum working in a profession that abused innocent people. Thomas was melancholy, mildly depressive, and pessimistic. James, son of Alphaeus, and Judas, son of James, were nobodies. They're not even mentioned in the Bible other than that list of disciples. Simon the Zealot was a freedom fighter and a terrorist in his day. Judas the treasurer was a thief and a loner, and he pretended to be loyal to Jesus until he betrayed him. Most of them, however, did have one quality. They were willing. And that's all God asks of us. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit garden.church.